Bullets That Changed America, 13 Historic Assassinations, Duels, Misfires, and Murders, available from McFarland Publishing, wherever books are sold. Now, back to our show. This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. Tom, what do we got? Well, today we're going to look at uh, something that I was surprised is actually your idea, right? I think um, that you uh, wanted to. We should have done soccer. Should have done soccer. Look into, yeah, but we're going to look at since it's the you know, summertime and the boys of summer, so we're looking to America's pastime. Um, hopefully, uh, educated Peter a little bit about this. So, the game of baseball, we're going to look at the origins of baseball, some of the um, fun facts about baseball, this, like, the kind of like also go through it and kind of because history people think they know, but it's not really what happened. I mean, baseball. I learned a lot just doing this research about baseball. I mean, I watched my son play baseball every single day. And I'm not going to lie. I grew up in communist Poland, so there was no such thing as baseball. But definitely America's pastime, you know, since I came to the U.S., it's very apparent that that is the sport. Although I guess, well, you know, football could kind of give it. It's one of the sports where I was saying like it's a sport that, you know, everyone, a lot of people play when they're kids. They listen to it when they were adults. So it's kind of one of those ones that's passed down. I can just say for like my own, you know, family History, you know, it was passed down from like my dad to me and you know, my boys. Like, I don't know how much they like it, but because they're younger, but it's kind of like a family tradition baseball. So it's it, like a very personal game for a lot of people. And it has a um, really complicated history if you really look at it and how yeah. it became an active role in like country itself, all the way from the Civil War, Civil Rights, World War One, World War Two. It's one of those sports, it's, it's really always been here. Like the yeah. other sports, you can kind of pinpoint this is when it started. But baseball, you can't exactly pinpoint that, but it's and it's got a lot of like... At one point, didn't they actually hire a commission that took him three years to pinpoint when baseball started because there's different claims? Yes. Well, because there's always been... Well, not always, but I remember in school, it was always that um, Doubleday created baseball in Cooperstown, New York, right? That's yep. why you have... And Doubleday's a... He was a Civil War general, right? He's been, yep. he, he was like a war hero, even at Battles of Gettysburg. So he's like this national icon anyway, in certain aspects. And the Baseball Hall of Fame is there, but it was actually... Um, until not pretty recently is when they did that. And that's kind of when um, they kind of changed it. And they said, eh, maybe, okay, fine. Doubleday wasn't really the uh, inventor. He's credited as the inventor in some aspects, but he probably wasn't. There's evidence of baseball way before Doubleday was around. Yeah, apparently they did that in 1907. Um, it was 16 years after Doubleday's death where the special commission was created. The only real piece of evidence here was this one mining engineer that apparently worked with Doubleday. His name was Abner Graves. And he said he went to school with Doubleday. And then he actually was there at the moment that, you know, Doubleday came up with the rules, the basic rules yeah. of baseball. Yeah. And, yeah, and uh, it's crazy is Doubleday never said I created baseball. Like he never said anything yeah. to do with baseball. He was, he always figured his legacy would be a union um, general right, in the civil war. Yeah. And like he, he was a lawyer, a writer and stuff like that later on in life. It was never, he never talked about baseball. But yeah, like you said, uh, after he was dead is when they started crediting him with that. But like, hey, they've they got ties to other things in the United Kingdom and yeah. stuff like that, which I guess we'll talk And in about. France, right? I mean, we were just France, talking about yeah. it before we click record. But uh, so this is highly likely going to be a two-parter. So I guess this would make it our part one. And, you know, we'll kind of get as far as we can get with it today. And then, uh, you know, next week we'll pick up where we left off and, and keep it going. So, Tom, you want to get going? I mean, origins of... Of well, there's a lot of origins, obviously. Yeah, so it's it's like a lot more complicated, I guess, than the Doubleday legend, which is that he invented it, and uh, you know during the Civil War, and they did play baseball during the Civil War. We'll get to that, but it goes back even further. The origins to really um, dates back to the 18th century, and um, it's kind of an ancestor. Um, its ancestors were two English games, right? Rounders, 
which is a children game that was brought to New England by the race Commerce and obviously cricket. You know, if you've watched some cricket games and stuff like that, you have that. And you have the, by the time of the American Revolution, you have a lot of variations of these games were being played all over the place in schoolyards, college campuses. And they were very, they became very popular in industrialized cities where people were going to work in the mid 19th century really because you could do it anywhere. You could just yep. kind of have like a wall built. You only need like a, something to hit, like a ball, a couple of bases, and you could play this game and you could uh, actually play it pretty quickly too, which I know if you're a fan of baseball today, you're like a, a fast baseball game. There's no such thing. But really back then you could get um, pretty quick. You get some of these games. But some of the first mentions of baseball, or the first official, one of the first clubs was in New York City. It was founded by the New York Knickerbocker Baseball Club. Uh, yep. Don't get it confused with the uh, basketball team. And one of them was a uh, volunteer firefighter by the name of Andrew Joy Cartwright. And he kind of created what's known as some of the first rules for the modern baseball field. Yeah, just time-wise, just so we're on the same page. We're talking about 1840s, right? That's yeah, 1840s. Yeah, the 1840s here. This is when Cartwright was around here. And he's calling for the diamond shape, the foul lines, the three-strike rule. Um, he got rid of some of the other rules that some of the players were playing with. Like he used to play to um, – it wasn't nine innings. It was a certain amount of runs. I believe it was like 26 runs or something like that. Yeah. He um, got rid of the idea of tagging runners by throwing balls at them. They kind of realized that's kind of dangerous. Yeah. Like <laughs> kick ball. By a ban- yeah. Well, yeah, but it's a little <laughs> different with a baseball. Like yes, if, I hit you, if I hit you with this before you get, you get to first base, you're out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so imagine, that, imagine that today with the people throwing hundred miles an hour. Whipping at them, so he. he I mean, it would make it for a. I would make it for a little more entertaining. I guess it'd be a little more exciting game, but also <laughs> changes things. Yeah, and it became faster paced and more challenging, and it also made it. It also by these rules that um, Cartwright puts in place, it changes the games in, from the. It changes it from like games like rounders and cricket. So and actually, we should also mention because like New Jersey is kind of involved in all this. I mean, yeah, Hoboken, right? Hoboken, New Jersey, is the first supposedly the first known competitive game between two clubs um, under these new rules, right? That Knickerbocker comes up with, and that is um, in Hoboken, Elysian Field, so our home state, and that happened on June nineteenth, eighteen forty-six. We don't know exactly which team played the Knickerbockers. However, the evidence points to the fact that it might have been a Goth the Gotham Club, which is another yeah. team. Again, all they these lost. teams are all these teams, yeah, bad. But all these teams are <laughs> amateur teams at this point, right? I mean, none of these players get paid. This is a pastime in a sense like these guys go work in factories and then they go and play. That's literally where we're at right now in you know mid eighteen hundreds. But yeah, Knickerbockers, uh, which claimed to be the best team at the time, got destroyed. It was twenty three to one. That's the definition of game. That's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. Well, I think that's what it was in the beginning. It was twenty whoever scored twenty three runs first. Okay. It, was, it, was a little bit, it was a little different rules still. The rules were still changing, but they were different. Different clubs had different rules. You had the New York game, which is one um, Cartwright created. You had the Massachusetts game, which was played by New England clubs, and Philadelphia Town Ball was another one. So you had all these different um, types, but it was basically, but because of these new rules, it was really growing in popularity, and it started to overtake uh, British um, cricket. Cricket. Yeah, and they said that in, in, the, in the United States at this point, obviously. But. Yep, and they said like actually like up to the Civil War time, when you looked at newspapers, uh, specifically New York newspapers, which are the biggest, some of the biggest, most known ones in the United States, most of them still de- devoted more time and space to uh, in their coverage to talk about cricket, and that kind of shifts. Um, in like the 1860s and 1860, mid 1860s, which is really the Civil War. It's almost like the Civil War kind of becomes like that transition time where you start looking at baseball and all of a sudden it starts getting a little bit more coverage. Oh yeah, absolutely. We have these um, conventions that come together, right? Yep. And um, uh, the national base, national association of baseball players was formed, yep. right? This is in 1857. 
And they're coming together and they formalize three key features of the game that you still see. 90 feet between the bases, nine-man teams, and nine innings under yep. the Knickerbocker rules. So instead of playing the first one, the 21 runs, I saw I said like so many different runs. It was 21 yeah. runs. Um, now they're saying, it's nine innings. Whoever is winning at nine innings will do extra innings if we have to after that. But really, these are the, these are the set rules now. So if you're going to play baseball in this National Association of Baseball Players, all the bases are going to be 90 feet apart. You're going to have nine-man teams. Like you said, during the Civil War, soldiers from the party of the United States played together, leading to a more unified version of the sport because a lot of them were members of the National Association of Baseball Players. So they're yeah, all and, and all, they all kind of came with different war. rules and regulations. So they, yeah. it started to standardize those rules for when they got out. They said the first and most prominent professional club of this National Association of Baseball Players was the Cincinnati Red Stockings. That's like the right? official first team, yeah. Yep, they went undefeated in 1869 post-Civil War. Um, they eventually broke up, and a lot of their key members and everyone kind of moved all the way all around. But this is also the time when first games, baseball games, really start to charge admission. Um, so while the players don't get paid, there is an owner behind you know behind the team that actually starts to make paid, money. Yeah. yeah. So you know, it becomes the idea is that like this is now uh, a form of entertainment. And say, and actually that leads to a whole lot of corruption because even though these players are supposed to be amateurs. A lot of these owners, to kind of keep their players so they didn't go to other teams, which happened super often, again, you don't really get paid. So what other perks do you get? They started sharing some of the admission fees with various players, which was considered illegal and not allowed. But nonetheless, this was commonly uh, a common practice, I would say, at the time. Yeah, um, the, place. the governing body, the National Association of Baseball Players, right, basically becomes like a national organization. But it's really kind of structured just in the northeastern part of the united states it seems like that's kind of where baseball becomes popular it's not really out west yet um it doesn't really yeah, go as far. Only one or two teams from out there's one i think in 1867 they do get one club from california to join but that's yep. they have so many clubs that that's fine it's over 400 members and yep. uh, at one point clubs as far away as california you know, these western clubs stuff like that but this is in the 1860s and 70s obviously yeah so, but, yeah there's it's no travel close. time. Like, how yeah, do you go? No tra- yeah. It's regional. It's state organized. A lot of these organizations start to come up, like like the baseball association. To uh, they, they really become more of a prominent role in the government of the the governance of the sport. Yep. And um, the professionals saw a new governing body. So the the NABBP that we've been talking about kind of starts to lose its power after the Civil War. Just looking at this, the first attempts of forming any form of a major league that is produced by this NAAP, you know, the National Association of Professional Baseball Players, I guess the first major league, even though it's not considered, because minor leagues, my understanding is, basically becomes a term really in 1930s for like feeder teams, right? Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting, Tom, I know you're probably not going to like this because you are a huge New York Yankees fan, but doing research here, it seems like a lot of baseball is really centered around Boston. Don't be mad. I'm not mad. This is just what it is. That's where I started, but you know, whatever. They said that one of the first like professional teams, right, that really took them seriously in 1870s was the Chicago White Stockings. Uh, today, the Chicago Cubs. They became one of the, yeah, they, they were financed by a businessman, William Hubert. And um, so that's why he was there. And he formed this kind of like team, even though the, um, they were always close contenders early on, kind of like what the Cubs were, but not really because mm-hmm. the Cubs were bad until pretty – well, they're bad again now, but they had like one good year. Um, but they actually um, – their field was actually destroyed in the, in the Great Chicago Fire, right? Plugged to I saw that, which is kind of crazy how like history um, gets – Yeah, they, and most of their equipment was destroyed, everything like that. And then they had to kind of recover shortly after. They actually dropped out for a while. They didn't come back until after the fire for a couple of seasons because they just were – they couldn't compete because they didn't have anything. All the equipment in their stadium was destroyed during the fire. Yeah, and it kind of – 
right? And it's not insane. Like, and that's, you know, the great Chicago Fire. But there was also a bunch of other, like, you know, professional leagues, mini leagues that start getting created yeah. around this time. A lot of them wind up folding because it's like, you know, I, we're going to have five teams here, five teams here. And then yeah. finally what happens is... Well, you have a lot uh, of teams too. I'm sure you saw, Pete, that there. I'm sorry to interrupt that they were... No, go, go. I saw this and I kind of... I didn't make sense. A lot of these teams, if they were like playing poorly or if they, they had like had a losing record and they couldn't get... A, they, they were like eliminated from like playoffs or whatever, they just wouldn't play the season out. Yeah, they were like, like I'm or, out. Or if they weren't getting drawing a lot of fans anymore, they would just be like, ah, oh, we're done. We're just not going to play anymore this year. And they're like, no, you can't do that. You're part of the league. And this would happen a lot. So they're so, like, you can't. It became a problem. And that's kind of where they started to let's make this a little bit more legit, which we have the creation of the National League of Professional Baseball Clubs. Because there was a lot of different rival leagues. But the National League of Professional yeah. Baseball Clubs, that's basically where you start getting some of the known, you know, you have Cincinnati Reds, Pittsburgh Pirates, St. Louis Cardinals, right? Brooklyn Dodgers. Like these teams are all kind of, they all stem from the American Baseball Association, where to be part of this league, you have to adhere to certain rules, such as, as yes. you mentioned, like you can't just stop playing or not show up because you have a bad season. And all of those kind of get folded into the American League, which is still around. I know, obviously, right? So well, the American they, League was like a minor league. Or it was the minor Western League of the um, – that's what it was called, the minor Western League. It starts in 1893. It kind of gets established a bit more in 1901 as the American League. And they're eventually going to then compete. And they lead to, what, I think the first World Series is 1903. So you start saying – they start to come together. But still, they're actually separate at this point. But you're start, again, you're seeing a lot of these leagues that we know of for the first time. Also at this time is this idea that a lot of these leagues that are operating in late 1800s, they have this gentleman's agreement that they would exclude non-white players from any professional baseball. And by professional, what, starts to, what really separates professional from amateur here, you know, these leagues that are considering themselves professional, they actually start paying um, their players uh, – you know, a salary. So hence the idea of you know, being professional leagues. It wasn't the jury. Like there was no laws that said you had to exclude um, black players. It was de facto. It was like a band that actually kind of stayed in effect until 1947. So, Jackie Robinson, yeah. Jackie Robinson, right? Prior to Jack, if you really study though, there actually were black players that did play in these new major and minor leagues that were springing yes. up in 1870s. However, as soon as this they started to standardize a little bit more, kind of decided like, okay, no African-Americans. So these guys were dropped. So technically, Jackie Robinson was not the first African-American major league ball player. I, he was, I guess, when you think of like major leagues. Yeah, sure. That, in the World Series era. Yeah, yeah. Those, the, the guys that we're talking about, what, Moses Fleetwood yep. and um, Weldy uh, Walker, they were dropped from major league minor league rosters. That was in the 1880s. Yep. And you had a lot of other, uh, what you could see, because other names out there too, you'll find there are a lot of... Um, African-American players who uh, represented themselves as even Indians or Central or South American yeah. and stuff like that. They get into these um, minor league teams and amateur teams, but in the majors, you didn't really see that until Robinson signed in, and then later, Larry Doby a few months later. Um, Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present if you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.
yeah. yeah. In Major League Baseball, 1947. And, you know, it's a fascinating story. Um, it, we really should do a podcast on Jackie Robinson. And I know we, you and I have been talking about this. Uh, it's such a fascinating story because he was not the best African-American player in the Negro Leagues, which is also something we should also mention that during this time, you know, like early 1900s, and I think we'll get to it in a little bit, you have the creation of Negro Leagues, which basically allow African-Americans to play against teams that are formed, you know, from other African-Americans. And uh, supposedly, based on what I was doing research on, it kind of really folds during the Great Depression. I mean, baseball is really hurt by the Great Depression, period. Yeah. But a lot of these Negro Leagues wind up folding during that time. And afterwards, they kind of spring up a little bit. But Jackie Robinson was not the best player. He just was the best fit to introduce a black player into the white baseball league. He was college educated. Um, he had a, a rank, a military rank during um, World War II. It's really eloquent, well-spoken. The belief was also that he was able or would be able to withstand the blatant racism that would be directed towards him. So he was selected to kind of open the door, uh, not just for the fact that he played baseball really well, but yeah, his you know, personality, his, his persona, yeah, everything, like everything that, else, yeah. which is crazy story, awesome story, and again, one of these days, I think we'll we'll get to it. All right, so, so backtrack a little bit. You're saying I jumped ahead I before. Like, oh, yeah, so um, you had a lot of these. Um, the early years of National League had a lot of um, threats from these rivalries we keep on talking about, right? And all the players were leaving stuff like that. So there was something put in place called the reverse clause, basically restricts free. Was it a reserve players. reserve clause? Reserve, reserve clause. I'm sorry, reserve right. clause, and it was basically restricted the. Movement of players. There was no free agent. So nowadays we talk about baseball. We'll get to that more when we get to the free agency. That's how baseball players make their money. So, and they knew that if we, if we have clubs start bidding on players, that's going to make a problem. So these competitive leagues that regularly formed and just disbanded just as regularly. Uh, and there's a lot of different ones. Some of them were known as um, the beer and whiskey leagues, simply because yeah. they let people sell a lot of alcohol, you know, didn't care how much people drank. There's a league called the American Association. And they would sometimes meet, not all the time, but sometimes they would meet against the National League in something called the World Championship Series. It was the first attempt at a World Series. They're not they're not considered yeah. World Series. People who won those are not considered World Series champions. But uh, it's the beginning of that idea. Let's have these teams from the two major leagues play. And again, this is there's no such thing as Major League Baseball that puts no, it all under no one umbrella. Baseball. These are just independent These are just independent that... professional leagues, right? So you have so so which one so what do we have so far? We have the National, right? Um, the American the Association, League. you have the Union Association, you have the Players League. You have the National Association. You have all the yep. time. And then of we have the American League, right? The American League is not the, yet. They're, they're there, but they're not They're not called the American League yet. They're still actually okay. called the Western League. Oh, yeah, until 1893. And then, yeah, yeah. okay, makes sense. So, so it's all over the place. It's like an alphabet soup of leagues, basically. It really is. So you imagine that. Imagine if, you know, when you Google, like, minor league baseball, you see all the different leagues that there are that exist all over the place. These are all leagues, and you have players playing in all these leagues and some of them are very good some of them aren't but imagine that and trying to keep track of all this it wasn't easy but it's also become very popular because a lot of these are very regionalized it might be just like a town an area so a lot of people really you know enjoy going to these games and seeing these players yeah it was in 1901 the american league declares its intent right to operate as a major league yeah. as well um and that's when like, supposedly that kind of becomes a bidding war as well because like now you have the west trying to take some of the talent from the east um and you have a lot of this contract breaking right that's happening during this time and that ultimately leads to the national league and the american league to kind of come together and sign this new national agreement in 1902 so they have a big meeting and they're like all right so you have a bunch of these different leagues somewhere in the north somewhere in uh you know in the west it sets up the idea of play contracts that a player cannot just leave uh, or be poached by another team, right? And the reserve clause you talked about. 
Um, then it, it led to the idea of World Series. All right, so we have having National World Series, yeah. Yep, you have National League, the American League, uh, which kind of become the, I guess, the heads of the their respective regions. Because of that, they're going to play this World Series, um, like you mentioned, 1903, and you know who won that, right? We're going by the Boston of the American League. Yes, <laughs> it doesn't. Matter. It's not the same. Ones. I, I know, but it's still from Boston, so I assume it would bother you a little bit. Come on. Uh, and last thing is basically establish their dominance, right, as the two major leagues over all the other independents. So the premise here is we are the yeah. two major leagues, and then once a year we'll come together and play a World Series. Yeah, and they said they can, they can trade players, they can sell players. That's allowed to do, but the players cannot leave on their own. That's yeah, they can sell the players' contracts. So you could sell yeah, someone's sell contract on a team. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they said a lot of independent um, leagues just kind of walked away from the meeting because they just they couldn't compete with the money also and the power behind the yeah. meeting. So uh, what do we get into now? I think the next time it's like we're the lead up to World War One, which includes World War One as well, and it's more commonly known as the Dead Ball Era. Dead Ball Era, right? yeah. All right. So let's talk, let's talk about Dead Ball Era. That's fine. So low scoring games and ultimately dominated by pitch. Around 1900, it's up until Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth changed the Dead Ball era. Yeah. Okay. Uh, BCB, he's the first power hitter that starts to come, um, and he's hitting record number of home runs, which we'll get to. With the rest of the, we're not having a uh, podcast about ba- early baseball without talking about Babe Ruth, but the era was basically categorized by low scoring games, and it, even home runs were like rare. It didn't happen. It was basically hit and run, slap at the ball, get on base, steal a base, and try to get home that way. And the lowest league um, ran um, – they just didn't have a lot of, like, runs per game. And stuff like that. I think it was 3.4 runs per game, which is not a lot, okay? Attendance started to hurt because of this too. You had a lot of ball scuffing, scuffing, which is basically the pitchers are putting dirt or other things in the ball. It was dominated by pitchers. Um, yeah, they said like they would basically mess with the ball so that way the yeah, players, it, yeah. the you know, the hitters couldn't really hit the ball out of the ballpark. Like they would mess with the ball. But just the story of baseballs, like the ball itself is insane, which kind of also lends itself to this dead ball era. You have in 1900, right? A baseball costs $3 each. That's equivalent today to $98 per ball. Isn't that crazy? Like yeah. if you buy them in bulk today, I mean, I don't buy them for my son and stuff. They cost a dollar at most. Back then, club owners um, in the around 1900 era were very reluctant to spend much money on new balls, sorry, if it wasn't necessary. So basically a single ball would last an entire game for most of the time. And the idea is like you didn't want, players are also like almost told like, yeah, don't lose this ball. Like it costs too much money. So they were encouraged to not hit hard. You know, they were encouraged to keep the, the game close. Well, yeah, you know, they, was, they changed a lot of the things. You couldn't you couldn't do spit balls and stuff like that, yeah. which is making the ball like a, if you have to throw a wiffle ball and stuff like that, right? Um, they also, like you said, they um, more baseballs used per game. There's basically a player, Ray Chapman, died during a game. He got hit in the head and he died. And um, that led to a rule that baseball must be replaced every time it got dirty. You'll, you'll see that today. Watch a baseball game. The umpires check. I think there's like only lots of a base, average baseball now and asks a few pitches. Because they always will, if it's scuffed up, they change the ball. Obviously, it's a foul ball. It goes in. It used to be, if it went into the stands, you had to give the ball back. Think about now. You're a kid. You go to a baseball game. You want to catch a foul wow. ball. That's like your biggest like dream. Yeah. You know, catch your foul balls. You know, you want to do that. But like back in the day, you know, it's 1920s, obviously, before then. Yeah. If it was a home run ball or like a foul ball, you got to give the ball back. Oh, we need that. <laughs> As you said, they were expensive. So you needed That's to, um, they get them in there. Parks were yeah. much bigger. So like yes. um, Wrigley, uh, West Side Grounds where the Cubs played, it was 560 feet to center field. That's huge. The Huntington Avenue grounds that the Boston Red Sox played originally was 635 feet. So the center field fence. Like these are huge, huge distances that like you're not going to hit home runs out of today. So they were much, a lot of them were bigger. They didn't move the stands and stuff like that again to 
try to get the offense back here. And yeah, I noticed also like they moved it when like the era when you start getting into like the Babe Ruth and the end of the Dead Ball era, they started moving the stands in closer because people wanted to see. Well, they realized the people cheer; they wanted to see home runs. So I thought so. I'll make it easier. That's one reason why Yankee Stadium has that short porch. They always talk about is because of Babe Ruth. You know, um, but we'll get to that. So yeah, I mean, like World War One, right? Mm-hmm. Um, starts to come out. We know, it, um, and in World War One, two hundred twenty-seven major league players served in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot yeah. of Hall of Famers, okay? Probably the most well-known is probably Ty Cobb, who served in the Chemical Warfare Service. They were icons, so they, a lot of them were um, instructors. They trained U.S. troops and conducted drills and things like that. Cobb actually got uh, accidentally exposed to, to gas, poison gas during this time. He recovered. Major League player by the name of uh, Christy um, Matthewson actually was exposed to a much larger dose of poison. And it damaged his lungs, and that's why he died at the age of 45, eight years after the war. So they, they went in this war, they fought, went in World War One, knowing, you know, bad things could happen. But coming back, that's where baseball's really going to take off, coming back from World, world War One. Yeah, I, you know, when I started researching, like the World War One Museum, um, if you go to like worldwar1.org, there, there's so many cool stories about it. I mean, sheer fact that hundreds of actual players went to serve. Um, they said that due to the shorthanded rosters in 1918 season ended early, right? And it was the only time that the October Classic was actually played in September entirely because they just didn't have enough players. Players, yeah. There's a few things that are kind of tied to World War One and baseball here. In September 5th, 1918, the Boston Red Sox wound up traveling to face the Chicago Cubs in Game 1 of the World Series. And they said that this is like the move that changed baseball history because... Uh, the Red Sox were short, so short-staffed because of uh, World War One, you know, soldiers being called up and stuff. Uh, they needed an extra outfielder, so the team's top pitcher shifted positions between starts, and that player was none other than Babe Ruth. Kind of put him in place, yeah. Again, yeah. he's a he's a topic we can do just a just a oh my goodness. Um, podcast, a few episodes, on. yeah. So another legacy of 1918 World Series, which I think was kind of a cool story when I read about it. During the seventh inning of Game One, apparently a military band truck. Um, like an impromptu started playing a start spangled banner right Mm -hmm. and a red sox third baseman fred thomas and he just came back he was on leave from the u.s navy and they allowed him to play in that game he snapped to attention and sort of saluting the flag and they said the rest of the players basically stopped playing and turned to face the flag with their hands to their hearts and just basically followed suit and then apparently the whole stadium went wild and crazy and then you know the fred thomas finished saluting and went back to playing the game which i think is really Awesome. And we should know that, you know, Star Spangled Banner was technically not a national anthem by the time. It, it didn't become a national anthem until 1931. A lot of people um, forget that. It was simply like a patriotic thing that happened. Let's get into the Babe Ruth era, right? That's a good... That's well, a good I think before we even do that, we have to talk basically what almost destroyed baseball and how Babe Ruth saves it, right? All right, go. And I guess um, one of that would be, I'm sure you saw this, in 1919, you have the probably the most famous scandal in all of baseball. When mm-hmm. eight players from the White Sox, Chicago White Sox, are accused of throwing that. the World Series against the Cincinnati Reds. And there's a whole bunch of movies about eight men out, right? We're not going to go into great detail about it. Maybe in a future podcast. Who knows? Um, sure, it's Joe Jackson, all the other good stuff. Feel the, feel the dreams, right? Um, yep, yep. But it's basically when that gets out that it was that these White Sox players threw the World Series for mobsters, basically, you know, so they could win more money. To the Cincinnati Reds, it hurts the game. It hurts a lot of the legacy and stuff like that of the game, the legitimacy of the game. It's really changing things, right? Like the people, people yeah. aren't sure. And remember, this is the Dead Bull era too, so the popularity of the game is kind of going down. Now you have this scandal. Then actually, in 1920, have we talked about talked about briefly before? Ray Chapman of the Indians is killed by a by a beanball. Like this is like maybe this game is not what we thought it was, right? So it's it's the yeah. popularity is kind of waning. 
And then luckily that Red Sox teams that you keep on talking about how great and amazing they are, they decide to, uh, because they're strapped for money, because the owner wanted to finance a play, decides to sell an up-and-coming player, a good pitcher by the name of Babe Ruth, to the New York Yankees also in 1920. And that's going to kind of uh, change things a little bit. So you have um, 1921 um, when, babe, when um, baseball is first broadcast on the radio, right? And then this is going to also how it's going to become the national pastime. What made Babe Ruth Babe Ruth? That was a lot about him. I guess, again, another podcast all by himself, right? But I guess you want to say basically his approach to the, to his, to the swinging is one thing. A lot of the other players had like this free swing or slap at the ball, right? Try to get on base. He had more of this uppercut type of swing his design was let me hit a home run i heard i actually like based on this research i heard that he was initially a very good left-handed pitcher and then ultimately they yeah yeah, and they they put him in an outfield because his hitting was so instrumental and important to winning games that they're like all right even though he's a really good pitcher we would rather him save that strength for hitting so they they stuck him in the outfield they wanted him basically they wanted him um, hitting more yeah, just rest, just rest, just rest in the outfield days. while you're so, yeah. Get, catch a couple of balls in the outfield and then go and uh, you know, like you look at little kids that are put in the outfield and they're like, oh, I'm in the outfield, and you're like, dude, Babe Ruth was in the outfield. And they're like, really? Yeah, uh, he wasn't there for the same reason, probably that those little kids on the team are put in the outfield. Though, let's Rock talk up. about some numbers, right? I mean, his one record, his uh, home run record, stands until 1961. In 1927, right, he hit 60 home runs, and that lasts till 1961. Yes. Who breaks that record? Yes. Uh, Roger Maris, there's always a little bit of, if you watch HBO movie, right? You have the it's 61, but an asterisk next to it, because that's what um, originally they said it had to be, because um, Ruth did it in less games. He hit the 60 home runs in less games than Roger Maris. They actually increased the games to 162, is what they have now, and that's when Roger Maris hit it. Um, so okay. Ruth hit, I think, 157 games. Um, also, he was the first player ever to hit over 700 home runs in his career. He, you know, he had the lifetime home run record until um, Hank Aaron broke it. And then Barry Bonds, people are both sides of the fence here about Barry Bonds. But um, yeah, so Ruth has a, you know, his career batting average was 342, which is amazing, right? Yeah. 2,873 hits, 714 home runs, over 2,214 RBIs. As a pitcher, his um, win-loss record was 94 and 46 and had an earned run average of 2.28. Like these are still like amazing stats even by uh, today's standards. So. Nuts, but also like he wasn't the only one. Like this was this was the time of home run sluggers, you know, like Lou Gehrig, right? Yeah, but have... he, he ushered, well, Lou Gehrig's a little bit later, but yeah, he ushers these in without a doubt. Like it's yeah, because Lou Gehrig's have... the thirties, isn't he? He's the thirties. Yeah, twenties. Yeah, you 30s. don't have these without without Babe Ruth. Yeah, he's the one that he's he's the one that's larger than life. He comes in, he's becoming basically um, famous because he's hitting all these home runs. The interesting is the Yankees at this time actually um, shared. The, the polo grounds with the New York Giants. The Yankees are starting to outdraw the Giants at home. So the Giants are getting mad. They're like, we don't want you playing here anymore. They're becoming such capacity. That's when they build Yankee Stadium, the original Yankee Stadium, and that's called the house that Ruth built because of this. Um, so like, again, they, they're, they're drawing a huge amount of people. People want to come and see this guy who's hitting 54 home runs in the season. At that point, it's more than any other team. And he's, he's known as being a partier too. Oh, yeah. And the hot dog eating. Like even as a kid, I remember him like how many hot dogs the guy ate. So I think this is a good way to um to stop this particular portion. Yeah, now we're um, up to like the, not modern era, but the game that we know of. So that's it, guys. Uh, thank you for listening to our part one of a two-parter on the history of baseball. 
Um, I actually surprised myself here, you know, with with knowing enough stuff about baseball to do a podcast on it. But I was relying on Tom on this one a little bit. Having said that, if you guys need to contact us, please feel free to do so. You could find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. So thank you so much. And uh, until next week when we finish this episode. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.